everyone, and welcome back to Operation History, a podcast where history is more than what you remember. Tonight, the digital table is filled with all four hosts. We have Lauren. Hi. Derek. Hello. David. How's it going, everybody? And for those of you who don't know me yet, I am Maria. In this episode, we will be discussing the Warsaw Uprising of 1943. Therefore, without further ado, I will hand the virtual mic over to David. Awesome. Thank you very much. And before we start the intro, I want everyone, if you're sitting and comfortable, to close your eyes. Just close your eyes for a moment. I want you to imagine yourself. You're in an occupied area. You are in Eastern Europe. About five years prior, 1936, out of a clear day, your neighbor decided to kick over your fence and launch an attack that's never been seen in your life up to this point. Tanks, fast moving in, attack bombers, bombing your cities, all to spread towards the east and to create more living space for the people of the invaders. This is the scene of Poland in 1939. In September 1st, 1939, Poland's invaded by Germany in what kicks off traditionally World War II, while some historians have different points of view. That is, at least in the United States, what we are taught is the beginning of World War II. Now, the year I am referencing is 1944. In 1944, Poland, predominantly Warsaw, will launch a major uprising against the German occupiers. That being said, the Polish people do not launch their uprising in just 44. They start planning, they start organizing in 1943. And that is where our story is really going to begin today. So in 1943, the people of Warsaw, the resistance movement, starts planning and using non-aggressive tactics against the German people, including, which this is probably my the funniest thing I read in my research, releasing lice into movie theaters filled of German soldiers and officers just to see them scratch. <laughs> I love it. Along with that, uh, the Warsaw resistance movement also threw paint bombs at German businesses that had pictures of Hitler. So they would throw um, things at the glass. The glass would break. They would throw a paint bomb, which is just a, a bomb filled with red and yellow and blue, the colors of Poland's flag in order to get it all over anything that was a Nazi-supporting building. Um, From 1939 up to 1943-44, 
the people of Poland were pushed out of their homes, out of their businesses to make a living space or a living space for German citizens. Now, in 1943 is when they start practicing. So 1943, they're making homemade explosives, homemade weapons. Um, they're planning in foxholes. They're trying to capture them. All for the moment of 1944. 1944 is the year they're planning on launching their uprising based off events happening around the globe. So the Soviet Union is pushing fast and hard against the Germans. The Allies are doing more resistance fighting in the West. So the people of Warsaw and Poland believe now is the chance to throw off the yoke of Germany. Now is the time to throw off the yoke of occupation. And the hope is that the Soviet Union will back them up. However, that is not meant to be. The active resistance component starts on the 1st of August at 1630. Also, for those who don't use 24-hour time, 4.30 p.m. There's rifle fire in the streets. There's explosion from grenades attacking the squads of Germans retreating from the front. The army commandant in charge of, of Warsaw imposes martial law over the town and doesn't say they're going to arrest civilians who are suspected of being on the conspirator side. But they're going to blow up their home with tanks. That sounds like a reasonable thing to do. I'm totally kidding here. This did not stop the resistance. However, if anything, it revved things up. Everyday people who did not consider themselves conspirators, who did not consider themselves part of the underground movement, started to work actively against the Germans by providing their homes as hospitals, shelters. Under Warsaw, there was underground tunnels moving people throughout. So people were actively using that to get from spot to spot. Now, the issue with looking for first count experiences from the Warsaw Uprising is a lot of them went underground after the uprising due to the Soviet Union really taking over. Thankfully, one of the sources that I have, one of the books I bought, which is titled, wait one moment, uh, Stockpole Military History Series, the Warsaw 1944 Uprising and Surgeon's Journal of the Uprising. Um, he's one of the commanders who fights on for 30 days before being captured by the Germans, really, by the Nazis. But as the uprising went on, people believed that they could actually do it. They could overthrow these Nazis. They could get rid of the tanks, get rid of the Germans. We're doing it. We're holding on. We are pushing them back. They're out of the city. We're holding on. At this point, the Nazis are so desperate in taking back Warsaw that they start using the Luftwaffe, which is the German Air Force, to bomb the city intensely. 
Anything that has the Polish flag is annihilated. Makeshift hospitals for the civilians and for the soldiers bombed out, tanks, obliterating city blocks. But in the face of this, the people of Warsaw fought on. The Germans relied on tanks at the time prior to the ending of the uprising, the urban city was highly dense, so tanks could not easily move in and out, and it gave the conspirators, the resistance fighters, the cover they needed to knock out the Germans as they came through in the beginning. Throughout my research, the amount of enthusiasm the soldiers have for throwing off the Germans, if they're injured, they were shot, they would go to the hospital for two days and if they were still injured they would go right back out to the battlefield to face the germans in order to get them out we are tired we are done with you you are weak and we want you out this uprising was so inspirational and the people the home army which is the government in exile wants this to work. They want to pull it off. So much so that people who are part of the Polish resistance fighters who are in concentration camps are attempting to break out of concentration camps in order to get to Warsaw to be part of this uprising. Now, towards the end of October of 1944, there was hope that the Soviet Union, who's just outside Warsaw, would come in and intervene. Unfortunately, that's not how the story ends. I wish I could say it was at that moment the Germans lost Poland and was pushed back to Germany. That's not the case. The Germans end up putting down the uprising in October 1944. And the Soviets wait until after the uprising is quelled to move in and push the Germans out of Poland. The Soviet Union was right there, right outside the border. And they waited, not because they wanted the Germans at their weakest. They did it because Stalin believed that the uprising was foolish. He didn't say it in public. There are reports when his public speeches that he was excited by the uprising. He wanted nationalists to win. But when push came to shove in private to Winston Churchill, to FDR, Stalin opposed the uprising, calling it foolish. The reason being was it was not orchestrated by Stalin backed communist. It was backed by the Polish government in exile. Stalin took that as an affront. And Stalin also wanted Poland for the greater part of the Soviet Union, that satellite state, that buffer zone between the West and the Soviet Union. Not only that, we know this because later on, Stalin would persecute anyone who was in charge of the uprising. There'd be political trials. And those who were part of the uprising, who wrote about it, 
was executed and they were called traitors to Poland because it went against what Stalin had planned for Eastern Europe. The only person of the big three, and when I mean big three, I mean Churchill, Stalin, and FDR. FDR is the only one that says maybe we should support Poland. But the politics of post-World War II Europe prevented FDR from doing that. FDR would need air would need airstrips in order to move supplies. That was in the Soviet Union. He would need the Soviet Union's permission to use those airports or those airstrips, which he was not going to get. And Stalin already made it clear that he was not going to support the uprising in any fashion. FDR also needed the Soviet Union for help in ending the Pacific War, the war against the Japanese. So it all comes down to Stalin not wanting this uprising to succeed. At the end of it, Stalin gets what he he wants. At the end of the uprising, at the end of World War II, Poland is absorbed as a satellite state for the Soviet Union. And those who were public about their defense of Poland or the exiled government was sentenced to jail and execution. Heroes who had given their lives, who organized this, were killed in the streets by Soviet-backed juries. This is important. The Warsaw Uprising is important for a number of reasons. And it's not the the Germans lost manpower, it gave, you know, it cut time. It's not that. What it comes down to is the spirit of people when they've had enough, when the chips are down and they want something bad enough. In this case, it's their independence. From the Germans, they will do whatever it takes, no matter what's in front of them, whatever obstacles are in their way, they will stand up and say enough is enough. And resistance, no matter what it is, is powerful. It went from paint bombs and lice in Nazi uniforms to fighting hand-to-hand street combat in order to get their objective. Now, at the end of the day, they still lost, but the spirit of the uprising is the thing that showcases the will of people more than anything. No matter what, never discount the spirit of the people. It's really just one of those things that you can still see the repercussions today. You can just see how during something like this, like with the other of the like big three, morals just completely go out the window when you want something. When it's just easier not to do something, which is completely different than the like, you know, civilians in Warsaw, you know, saying, you know what, it would be easier just to put our heads down and hope for the best. But even like the president of the United States, it's like, yeah, but like, what if we, we have to go drop like two bombs on Japan? Like we need backup. You know, instead of just being like, um, this is actually fucked. Yeah, I, I mean, familiar. 
you really have to think about it because the, the Polish people at that point, they, they were 100% set up during this because the Russian army had actually contacted the underground Polish resistance and had sent them things saying, we're on our way, rise up so it's easier for us to go through and we're going to liberate you. By the time they got nearer to Warsaw, they held out. They stopped. The Russian army, the Red Army, had stopped before Warsaw in order to see both the Warsaw Defense Force, which was the home army of the exiled Polish government in exile, as well as uh, the Germans, both at their lowest, weakest point, so that the Red Army could just come through and crush both in one swell, uh, one fell swoop, making sure that they are the only power players in the area. As far as like sadistic, a game of chess, Stalin was like the best chess player around. He knew what to do at what time because he knew how to topple governments. He knew how to make sure that everyone that he wanted to defeat was at their weakest and then <laughs> take them out and then go and send in his KGB agents to, you know, silence any, you know, protesters about it. it it's, it's something that echoes throughout time with authoritarian regimes like the USSR, like many different, more authoritarian um, types of governments throughout the world, both communist, uh, fascist, it doesn't matter which side, it's authoritarianism that leads to this same kind of ideology where even though, like you were saying, the people are rising up and trying to overthrow this, there's always the, un uh, there's, to quote uh, Jurassic Park, uh, you, you, you're so distracted by one, you don't see the other one that's sneaking up on your side, you know? <laughs> I like that analogy. As do I. It's just like, just looking at like what's happening today in the world, it's just like the more things change, the more they stay the same. I, I was thinking that I hadn't really heard much about this before we, before I was able to jump into it for this episode. And yeah, to kind of just quote what Lauren said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I was kind of wowed at how things haven't changed. But not only that, it gives us a better a better look because typically when we think of people who resist during World War II, our minds are like, oh, the French resistance or the, the Danish resistance. We don't think of the Polish resistance. And if we do think of the uprising in Warsaw, we think of it as another context, either the Jewish uprising or the Eastern European uprising. It's not that. It's Polish people, no matter what their ethnic rap is resisting and saying we are done with this we want our own and finding the way to try and make it happen so i think that's the it showcases that no matter where you are in history there's always something heroic about it even in poland especially in poland especially during that time a country that's only been around for 20 years before they're reinvaded and they're willing to put up that fight 100%. They, they, they had fought so hard for this and the fact that it was beaten down so much, it, it really doesn't surprise me at all that 
there is such a large nationalistic movement within Poland right now because of, you know, episodes like this of, you know, being so fiercely beaten down and then saying, well, I'm Polish. My people are out there fighting every oppressor that comes past. It's not surprising that you have people that are in these countries that are saying, well, you know, they're, they're ultra nationalistic. It's, it's, it's a sad symptom of this, but it, it just goes to show what things can lead to that after years upon years upon years of oppression, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna have an in uh, a, a breeding house of all this kind of more radicalized thought, you know, whether it was on one side or the other, you know, you're either going to have communist uprisers or you're going to have nationalistic uprisers. It's almost inevitable. It's one of the things that we've seen in history that it's the perfect storm. Like you said, Derek, if you have this overly oppressive regime, it's only a matter of time, you know, off. I, I can think of hundreds of instances off the top of my head where we've seen this before because sooner or later, dissent is going to breed within the oppressed people. And sure enough, one person shares an idea with another person that gains traction. And before you know it, you have a resistance movement. Especially with something like this, where honestly, like, you know, it's a lose-lose situation. Like, even if the Russians show up, that's not going to necessarily in the long run end well for you so you might as well just you know stick up for what well well, i think dave hit the nail on the head when he said people want their independence i mean we're we're seeing it now in certain parts of the world where sometimes no matter how defying the odds are people want their independence people want freedom and they're going to dig their heels in to do what they have to do to maintain it and achieve it And let's also not forget part of the context also for the invasion of Poland in the beginning of 1939 was the split between the Nazis taking the West and the Soviet Union taking the East. So at the end of the gate, at the end of the day, Poland was always the target. And in this case, instead of being divided up, the Soviet Union was like, we can take all of it. And I think that was the other part too, for the people of Poland. like, enough's enough we're not going to be your beat boy we're not going to be your beat boy if we can pull this off on our own this is our moment that we are independent we own our allegiance to no one we don't owe you anything we don't you owe you anything this is our land and we're gonna fight for it yeah give them hell that was really interesting i I haven't really heard much about it i wish i knew more I was going to say, I wish this was one of the things when covering the Second World War in high school that I had heard more about of earlier on. The, the problem about World War II in American high schools is that 90% of the time when you learn about it, you're learning about a U.S. history perspective. So yeah. they will not tell you a single thing about anything that's going on except for, well, Pearl Harbor happened. Then we did island hopping. Oh, yeah, we went and did uh, D-Day. End of the war for them. We bombed some things. Done. That's that. You're going to get that through in about a week and a half. Well, what's nice about teaching World 2 is I'm on the other side of 
World War II. I, I am I I have to take a look at it from a more Eurocentric point of view. And in that Eurocentric point of view, this is something that is highly, at least from the book that I'm using that my, you know, my school district tells me I have to use. It is in there. However, it is listed as a um, a Jewish uprising, not a Polish uprising. So when you get to the Holocaust, that's when that's when it's mentioned. I mean, it, it's fair to call it that because the, the the ghetto uprising, the Warsaw ghetto uprising, happened because that was when the Nazis went into the ghettos to try to get the last of the people out of there so they could finally say, well, Poland's completely open. We're good, everyone. Everyone's in the camps, open for Lebensraum. You know, you, yeah. you got all your living room that you want. That, that was the last straw. By that point, the writing's on the wall. There's no, you know, oh, well, they went off to work camp. No, they, they knew by that point that they were not getting sent off to, you know, a happy farm upstate. You know, just like the German, the Germans are saying, yeah, you you guys are going to be fine. We're just shipping you somewhere. Yeah, no. They, yeah, by no. then, they knew. So there's it's either fight or die. They knew that if they were going to fight, they were going to fight. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I again, I'm not describing this. Just I wish it was more, it was more of the regular turning the tide stuff, a a made a factor in why the war started to turn as just being, all right, we mentioned it here in this one little paragraph, and we're good. That that's all. Yeah, I, I understand that. I, I also think it's it's important to keep it in context because you know especially given the Holocaust impacts, getting one like little stab back at the Nazis during that. I think that's like, it's, it's an important thing for a lot of Jewish people that, Hey, we didn't just fucking walk there, you know, blindly and say, Oh, well, guess we're going to die. Now we fought tooth and nail to, you know, literally try to keep our lives it, it keeps that kind of sense of rebellion about, you know, sense of freedom, passion, life, you know, going. Agreed. And it shows that it, it shows a weakness to the Nazis because a lot of times they're portrayed as this unbeatable, immovable object, especially in situations with Jewish people and what they did. And this is, you know, this is showing that the Nazis were beatable too. Yeah, I, I totally agree that it shows the the fallacies of a authoritarian regime. If you are on the top and persecuting the bottom, eventually the bottom's going to say, "Well, you know, <laughs> I don't like this. I want this to be changed." So, you know, I, I think that yeah, you're hundred percent right. It, it shows that that kind of system doesn't work dictators and leaders are overthrown for their you know crimes against the people and it, you it's see just it you see it in you see it in colonialism you see it i mean from an american perspective the american revolution is the one that that keeps jumping to mind because again it's a very similar situation of people saying no this is not this is unacceptable and we're gonna fight back so yeah you have all the anti-colonial era, all the different countries throwing off, you know, colonial empires. 
it, it, it happens. The, the second that the average person realizes they're being persecuted, mm-hmm. class consciousness happens. That's it for whoever's oppressing. There's, yep. there's no way you can subjugate an entire population once they are well-read enough and well-versed enough in what they actually deserve rather than what they're getting. Agreed. Final thoughts? Before we start moving to the outro, I just want to say, because I know we have listeners throughout the globe, different different spots, Everyone's dealing with different things, especially nowadays in the year 2022. No matter what you're going through, you can always fight your way out. And whenever you feel like you are down, fighting, pulling yourself up, using that last energy that you have to keep going, no matter what anyone tells you is the strongest thing you can do. So every day that you defy the odds, that you take those chances, those risks, you're making yourself better and you're making others better. And in this world right now, there's a lot going on and we're not going to harp too much because turn on the news, you can see it. But just know that every day when you get up and you do what you're doing, going to your job, studying, you put that effort in, you put that work in, you're going to make it work. And if you feel down and out, you can always over- overcome the struggle, just like the people of Warsaw did in 1944. Because even though they lost, they still fought on, no matter the odds. And we're still talking about them today and the heroism that they displayed that day. Yeah, be we, safe we out there, everybody. Yourself. Take care of yourselves. True that. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We appreciate all our listeners and the support that we have received. Please rate, download, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. It's a small and simple thing that you can do to help out the Biz Show in a big way. If you'd like to interact with us, there are several ways that you can do so. You can reach us at our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Operation Hist. You can shoot us an email at operationhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can view us on our website, operationhistorypodcast.wordpress.com. All of our sources and show notes from this episode will be uploaded with the episode. Thanks again for joining us. And this is Operation History, signing off. history has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History.
Thank you so much for turning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You did that to yourself. We did nothing. Yeah, I really did. did. You know, did. I, I need to we get closer behaving. to this monitor. You know, I couldn't see the monitor very Thanks clearly. Thanks for turning in to turn2ten.com. <laughs> <laughs> wow, really outing us like that, aren't you? Just saying. Ahem.